host, Janet. And I'm Tom. And answering the phones for us today is Greg. If you want to join our conversation, you can give us a call at 813-239-9663 or send us an email at dj at wmnf.org or you can text us at 813-433-0885. Today on Wavemakers, the climate crisis. The latest United Nations Climate Summit has been in the news for the past couple of weeks. And once again, the summit started with dire warnings about the Earth's future as a place hospitable to humans and ended with incremental steps intended to mitigate that dark future. The notion of carbon emissions warming the planet has been around since the 19th century. Way back in 1896, Savante Arrhenius, a Nobel Prize-winning Swedish scientist, first showed how CO2 was warming the planet though he thought it would be beneficial. He also couldn't imagine how much carbon we were going to put into the atmosphere. Nearly 100 years later, world leaders gathered for the first Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro. That was 30 years ago. Since then, according to the science, humans have added as much CO2 to the atmosphere as in the past 30,000 years. Since that first summit, the Arctic ice cap has shrunk by two-fifths, Greenland has shed some 4 trillion metric tons of ice, and mountain glaciers have lost 6 trillion tons. Heat waves are now hotter, droughts are deeper, and storms more intense. Is it too late to stop these changes to the planet, or has our understanding come to a point where we can make a difference? Joining us today are two wavemakers to talk about the climate crisis. U.S. Representative Kathy Castor, who chairs the House Select Committee on the Climate Crisis, just returned from Egypt, where she was part of a delegation participating in the latest United Nations Climate Summit. She'll be calling in later in the hour to talk to us about what happened there, um, about what happened there. And joining us right now on the phone is Don Chambers, a professor in the University of South Florida College of Marine Science. He's a renowned climate scientist who has participated in previous United Nations climate reports. Welcome to the show, Don. Thanks for being with us. Uh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it very much. You're um, uh, quite an expert on all of this with doing a lot of work with NASA and exploring oceans and understanding what's going on with oceans. So um, what's the state of the planet right now when it comes to climate change? Is there any chance of reversing what's happening well, it's going to take a very long time for natural processes to scrub the carbon from the atmosphere. And even if we magically stopped adding carbon dioxide to the atmosphere from burning fossil fuels, there's a certain amount of climate change that's already baked into the system. And that's primarily because the oceans have absorbed the majority of the heat that's been put into the Earth system over the past uh, couple of centuries. And it takes a very long time for that heat to uh, leave the ocean. And so if you think about a hot cup of coffee, it doesn't cool off very quickly. It takes some time 
for that heat to leave that coffee. And the ocean is exactly the same thing. It's a liquid that's been warmed and heated, and it's going to take time for that heat to leave it. So you're saying that if we magically stopped right now and and stopped increasing our, our carbon emissions, left them where they are now, um, there's a certain amount of heating or climate change that is, well, I guess it's heating that causes all these other problems, but it's inevitable, basically. Even if we stopped right now, there's a certain amount that's going to happen. There's a certain amount that's going to happen. The uh, Atlantic Ocean is still going to stay warmer than normal, and it's going to take time for that heat to dissipate through natural processes. Uh, some of that heat's going to get into the deep ocean, and there it will stay for a thousand years before it reventilates to the atmosphere. But that heat in the ocean also helps explain why we're seeing more intense storms. Is is that correct? Very much so. I mean, the uh, tropical storms are fed by the heat engine of the uh, upper ocean. And so a warmer Atlantic is going to lead to potentially stronger storms. And that's what we are seeing. According to NOAA, in the 1980s, the U.S. saw an average of three disasters in the billions of dollars in the 90s, it was five per year. In the 2000s, it was six. And in the 2010s, it has jumped to 12. Um, and, and it is costing us lives. It's costing us, it's costing us um, you know, uh, 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 billions and billions of dollars in damages. We saw what happened with Hurricane Ian. Um, is this the kind of thing that you think might get people's attention? Or are we just sort of shrugging it off and adjusting? You know... Honestly, we've been living with hurricanes for the past 30 years, and every time there's a big storm, people are concerned, but then they forget about it until the next big storm comes in. Right. Uh, You know, humans have the capacity to have short-term memories and forget about the bad things. Yes, they do. (laughs) And that seems to be true when it comes to climate change. Uh, As we pointed out uh, at the very beginning... Uh, we had uh, we've had these warnings for not just decades, but more than a century. Uh, but what would it actually take for us to get to something closer to car- even carbon neutrality? Because the reality is that while the emissions in the United States have gone down a little bit, uh, that's not true in the rest of the world. Yeah. So you know that that's as much a uh, sociology problem as it is a, and a psychological problem that it is a scientific problem. You know, from the scientist's perspective, we can tell you exactly what needs to happen, but uh, whether the populations are actually going to do that is completely outside of our control. Well, let's talk about the impact then, because uh, you, uh, you specialize in studying the impact that it's having on the oceans. And clearly, that is something that folks in Florida should be or have been paying attention to. And so, this is going, obviously, this has been going on for a millennia. The, the, the climate changes frequently. Florida has, has grown, it has shrunk. Uh, I, don't, I don't want to go over, you know, uh, detail what's happened in millions of years, but how do you put this together with the history of, 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 of sea level rise in Florida? Well, so if you look at it from a geological perspective, 
sea level has been a lot higher in Florida and it's been a lot lower in Florida. But that's related to glaciers forming in the northern hemisphere and glaciers leaving the northern hemisphere during the ice age cycles. And that's a completely natural process that's explained by the Earth's orientation with the sun and how close it is to the sun and, and things like that. And those have cycles of several tens of thousands of years. Uh, where we are now, though, is in a completely different cycle than what we've been in before. So, as you said, we've put more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere over the last 200 years than we previously and has naturally occurred over 30,000 years. More importantly, we are now at a level that is 50% higher than at any other time in Earth's history going back at least 700,000 years. Now, that way, way millions of years ago, carbon dioxide was higher for much natural reasons, but that's not where we are in today's world. The, the amount of carbon dioxide that's in the atmosphere has been put there from burning fossil fuels. There's, yeah. Um, and I want to get, we want to talk some more about the human impacts to climate uh, change and uh, some more details on what the Florida coastline has looked like over the millennia, because I find that to be a really interesting topic. But right now we've got um, U.S. Representative Kathy Castor on the line. Um, Representative, can you hear me? I can, Janet. How are you? Good. Thanks so much for being here. Really Thanks appreciate for being it. with us, Kathy. Um, so you just recently got back from Egypt, where you were part of the most recent UN uh, climate conference. Tell us uh, about your experience there, and, and what were your big takeaways from your time in Egypt? Yeah, well, thanks so much, and what an honor it was to represent the United States of America on the world stage with uh, President Biden and Speaker Pelosi and our congressional delegation, because uh, for the first time, we arrived at the con Conference of Parties. They call it the COP. This is COP 27. Uh, we arrived with passage of the most historic uh, climate law in the history of the United States of America and the most significant investment in clean energy and resilience ever uh, in history uh, among all of the nations in the world. So people were enthused that the United States of America, just a couple of years after the former president had taken the United States out of the Paris Climate Accord, that we were back, and we weren't back with just talk, but we were back with significant investments. Remember, the Inflation Reduction Act invests about $360 billion in our clean energy transition to lower cost for consumers by using affordable clean energy across the economy, from how we heat and cool our homes to how we uh, heat and cool businesses and they operate electric vehicles and then significant investments in resilience to protect our communities as well. So this was a COP that was focused on implementation of countries' uh, pledges to reduce greenhouse gases, uh, and there was a lot of dialogue coming from the vulnerable nations across the world that are not major emitters. Uh, they sought some... Uh, a new fund for loss and damage so that they can grapple with the the overwhelming drought 
floods, fires that that folks are experiencing around the world. That they're experiencing as a result of all the carbon emissions from more developed countries, basically. Let's let's talk a little bit more about that, the the damage fund, the loss and damage fund. How is that going to work? Is that just a, a blank check? And they're going to send a lot of money to these these countries or, or how is that going to work? No, it, and it's in the early stages. They're, first of all, the United States of America plays a leadership role across the world in partnership with uh, developing nations and, and our allies, and we already... Uh, provide very significant resources through USAID, uh, through what we learn through science, through NASA and NOAA that is shared with other countries. Uh, we also, uh, it's going to be very difficult, frankly, to pass uh, significant funds into a loss and damage fund out of the United States Congress. It's already been tough to to get the Congress to fund our Green Climate Pledge, which is to help with affordable clean energy and resilience uh, investments to the tune of about $3 billion. We've passed it in the House. It, it may go through the Senate this year, but for loss and damage, which is a separate fund, it's going to be difficult over time. So what we are focused on is ramping up uh, additional ways where the United States can help lift those vulnerable countries through uh, providing the technology on solar and wind, on lifting the uh, the uh, International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. Right now it's very easy to finance gas and coal projects across the world, and we are pressing for reforms for financing of clean energy projects so that they have priority. Uh, and also, a lot of funds will go in through our USAID programs to, to help lift those countries. So the, stay tuned for exactly how the U.S. participates in the coming years on loss and damage. But the vulnerable nations uh, did prevail here and say, said to China, India, the United States, other major emitters get that you've caused this damage and you need to you need to to understand the damage and and kind of pay up for for the damages that you're causing. Now you're talking about how it would be difficult to actually get funds from the United States, the U.S. Congress for a damage fund. You're and, and I assume that you're because of the political nature of it. I mean, we have couldn't even, as you mentioned, get a green energy bill barely passed by our Congress because we have people who don't really feel like that is the correct direction to go. So That was the first climate change uh, legislation passed by Congress, right? Uh, even though there was testimony 35 years ago about the threat. Yes, we're, we're late. Uh, we're running out of time. The world's top scientists from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and their last report said we have a rapidly closing window to get on the clean energy path and to avoid the worst costly impacts of the climate crisis. And we're already seeing that in Florida. Hurricane Ian is probably going to be the costliest disaster that we've ever grappled with. It comes at a time when we're all dealing with a property insurance crisis, flood insurance. A lot of folks don't don't have it. So there has to be an acknowledgement that these investments are vitally important to save people money down the road and to save lives. And I, 
uh, it's really just been over the past few years, people are kind of awake to that fact. Gosh, if you use the affordable and abundant power of the sun to power our lives rather than importing coal and gas that that dirties Tampa Bay and the Gulf of Mexico, that maybe, just maybe, that is a provides a brighter future, a path to a more sustainable Florida. And uh, Florida's behind co- compared to other states. A lot of other states have clean energy goals. Uh, they're already more committed to solar and wind energy. But we're the sunshine state. We should be a leader. It sure would create a lot of jobs. So hopefully the this Inflation Reduction Act and the new tax credits for solar power and more energy efficiency will will push the state of Florida or at least the the utilities to to move along and do their fair share. Are the tax credits intended to push the utilities or the consumer? Because the utilities seem to be opposed to these changes that you're recommending. They're both. No, these these tax incentives are going to be so significant that the utilities here in Florida, FPL, Duke, uh, Tico will not be able to ignore them because. But the legislature and the governor have got to stop doing their bidding. They've got to say, "Gosh, we're paying. We're going to pay billions of dollars for these costly hurricanes, more intense hurricanes, the hotter days, impact on tourism, uh, impact on the ag sector. They have got to push them." so that they are not making money on major capital investments on gas and coal and allowing them to charge consumers and gouge consumers for fuel costs and instead go the the cheaper route. And those tax incentives, yes, should push the utilities, and the utilities, I think, will use some of their political heft in Tallahassee to to get compensated for energy efficiency and and clean energy rather than uh, dirty and another tax credit that's in the bill that I'm looking forward to uh, trying to uh, use myself and buying an electric vehicle is a tax credit if you buy an electric vehicle, whether it's new or used, right? You bet. I, and Florida is the uh, ranks number two in the country with the number of electric vehicles on the road. And now we'll have models uh, rolling off the assembly lines that will provide uh, greater affordability and greater variety. <clears throat> including the most popular vehicle in America, the F-150 truck, which uh, is called the Lightning. And uh, you can, if you lose power during your hur- a hurricane or after a hurricane, you can plug your home into the engine of the new F-150 Lightning and power your your air conditioning. Wow, that's crazy. It's true. <laughs> but, of course, in order for this to really work, uh, we're going to have to change the way uh, utilities produce power, right? I mean, yes. they're using coal, they're using natural gas and oil, not so much uh, wind, not so much uh, hydro or, or, or um, solar. Uh, how, how, do you, how do you make that happen? Is this Boy, through the incentives again? And it's costing us a lot in climate impacts. But just think when gas prices were so high this summer, one of the reasons your electric bill was so high is that Florida and the utilities are overly reliant on gas. We power in the state of Florida. We generate about seventy-five percent of all the electricity we use from gas. So when you have a petro dictator like Vladimir Putin, who causes a these massive price spikes in in gas, that people often don't connect the dots. But that's Florida putting all the eggs in the gas 
basket has really cost us a lot of money. That's why I'm I'm hoping that the legislature, the governor, will listen to the people and start to invest and push the utilities to use more clean, abundant solar power, especially since we're the sunshine state. Um, I, I do I have to just say as an aside, I find it to be interesting that it took the Inflation Reduction Act to get these significant um, changes made uh, rather than having a Green New Deal. Um, any thoughts on that? Well, the Green New Deal was always a, a um, punchy moniker, but it really wasn't a wasn't the the detailed legislation. Actually, the basis for the Inflation Reduction Act was the report issued by my committee, the Select Committee on the Climate Crisis, a couple of years ago. That was a very detailed climate action plan for the Congress. And people can go to climatecrisis.house.gov and watch our progress. We've already passed over 200 of our recommendations into law, including in the Inflation Reduction Act and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law and the Chips and Science Act, uh, and we're not done. We're going to keep pressing ahead. Uh, but that Inflation Reduction Act now provides continuity for 10 years to provide those tax credits for electric vehicles, electric cars and trucks, but also to do community solar. Mayor Jane Castor said it's going to save the city of Tampa $1 million just in the new community center in East Tampa but because they're going to be able to get a rebate for solar panels on the roof. So those kind of benefits will cascade across uh, local governments, uh, nonprofit agencies, and consumers. Uh, over time, and boy, people could really use some money back into their pocket right now, too. And what's going to happen to your committee with the Republicans taking over the House? Well, they they have not been a productive allies with us in tackling the climate crisis, and it appears that uh, the incoming Speaker, Kevin McCarthy, is going to nix the Climate Crisis Committee. They The Republicans, unfortunately have been too closely aligned with fossil fuel companies and polluters, and they they were not partners in our climate uh, crisis action plan. We didn't get one vote uh, for the Inflation Reduction Act that re- will reduce pollution and boost resilience and ensure environmental justice. Uh, so we're going to have a battle on our hands, but they're going to be isolated because now it's going to be about implementation. And with President Biden and the administration uh, now having significant funds to, to invest in communities for, for members of Congress like me to make sure that those tax credits come to the Tampa Bay area and help power uh, people's lives here, that's where the focus will be. I think we have a caller who wants to ask a question. I'm going to see if I can make it work. Clay, I'm about to try to uh, bring you on air. If it doesn't work, then maybe try sending us an email to DJ at WMNF. He has a question for Representative Castor. Are you there, Clay? I am. Can you hear me? Yep. Oh, cool. Uh, so this is Clay from Land Lakes, and um, I wanted to point out that where well, the IRA does all those wonderful things, it also has some baggage inside of it about supporting the fossil fuel industry, including uh, even coal production that uh, Mansion got in there. And then there's the fact that when we need to be stopping this right now, we have the, uh, the 
still investing in all of this um, fossil fuel infrastructure, pipelines and, uh, um, you know, fracking and you know, all the other things that are going on. And we subsidize it. You know, everyone talks about welfare. They don't want people to get welfare, but we give welfare to the fossil fuel industry. Do you have a question for the representative, Clay? Yes, I want to know why that kind of stuff ends up being in the bill. Okay, thanks. And that gets to my, I appreciate that, Clay. Thanks for the um, the call. I want to give um, Representative Castor a chance to answer that because that was what I was, <laughs> kind of what I was getting at, that, you know, we can't have a climate bill. We have to do things like put it in the Inflation Reduction Act. So what's your response to that, um, yeah. Representative Castor, uh, Clay's comment? Clay is right. It was an unfortunate price to pay for a historic climate law, uh, and there is some baggage in it. So what we do is we keep keep fighting. There is no reason that that the United States government should be providing any subsidy to fossil fuel companies right now, and yeah. that's going to continue to be um, a battle in the appropriations process uh, on on pipelines, you know, it's very difficult to build the large-scale transmission lines that we're going to need for renewable resources to connect up solar and wind power. Uh, they they need to be at least on par with the uh, gas pipelines over time. So that's another area where we're fighting right now to improve the the way transmission of renewables uh, are are accomplished. But but you're right, and that's why you just never give up. You, you stay in the fight, and we have a a follow-on climate action plan on what remains to be done. And you can you can count on me to include the withdrawals, the fossil fuel subsidies, and other fossil fuel uh, investments to get to where we need to be on on our climate goals. Well, um, we've certainly appreciated your leadership on this issue over the last several years. In our last few minutes, just wondering if you want to say something about. Um, our outgoing, uh, the outgoing House Speaker. You've worked with Nancy Pelosi very closely, and she tapped you for this uh, really important role in Congress. Um, and what do you, what has it been like working with her? And and how um, are you going to carry forward with her legacy? Janet, thank you so much. Speaker Pelosi has it really is the most effective Speaker of the House in the history of the country, and to to serve with her has been. A privilege to watch watch how she builds coalitions over time to yep. accomplish uh, monumental things. Think about this: while I've been in Congress and she's been our leader, we passed the Affordable Care Act that mm-hmm. lowered the cost of health care. Now, through the Inflation Reduction Act, our major climate law, monumental investments in clean energy to help us meet our climate goals, cutting the cost of prescription drugs, capping the price of insulin. Uh, we passed in the House the Equality Act, uh, the American Dream and Promise Act to provide our dreamers a pathway to citizenship. She's just a remarkable legislator and uh, at the same time a a thoughtful, uh, very religious uh, Italian grandmother who mm-hmm. I think brought all of those skills to bear to lift the Congress but to lift our country. And I'm grateful for her confidence in me uh, all along the way. Well, we appreciate your work and keep up the good fight there in Washington. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Happy Happy Thanksgiving Thanksgiving to you. Thanks for the call. Appreciate you joining the show. 
Um, if you're just tuning in, um, you're listening to Wavemakers on WMNF with Janet and Tom. That was U.S. Representative Kathy Castor, who, at least until January, chairs the House Select Committee um, on the Climate Crisis. Um, we also have on the line with us um, Don Chambers. He's a climate scientist with the USF Department of Marine Science, who's um, a really a, a leader in the field of understanding uh, climate change and global warming. If you want to join the conversation, you can give us a call at 813-239-9663 or send us an email at dj at wmnf.org. Um, and again, the number is 813-239-9663. The email is dj at wmnf.org. We're going to take a call right now from Nathan. Nathan, you are on the line. What's on your mind? Good morning. Can you hear me? Yep. Great. Uh, I'm Nathan from Tampa. Uh, Car-dependent transportation and land use is one of the biggest single end-use contributors to global CO2 emissions in the U.S. Um, And I I think we all know our car dependency has other implications for our community here in Hillsboro, including um, our highest transportation costs in the country, our unfunded infrastructure, um, that we're a dangerous place to live if you're not a driver. For me, this is one of the most important things that we can do locally to address climate change is, is to fix our land use so we're not so dependent on, on this really you know, taxing form of transportation. But that seems like a third rail in politics locally. Um, even though nationally, the Biden administration has been pushing a clear uh, progressive policy agenda um, for things like extending exclusionary zoning, um, it would have been great to hear uh, the representative's perspective on this. So my question is, what role do political leaders, especially locally, have in bringing these solutions to our cities and counties? And why don't we see this being talked about more often? Well, um, Nathan, you know, it, I actually am I'm involved with Walk Bike Tampa, an organization that focuses on bringing safer streets to everybody, but particularly walkers, people who walk and get around by bike. And it's not about recreation. It's about, that's part of it, but it also is about being able to move around the city and be able to get from point A to point B where you want to go to work and shop and play and dine and visit with your friends and family and be able to use alternative transportation, including um, walking and biking, which is even, you know, has less of an impact on our community than um, or on, on the environment than um, mass transit. But you're um, right. The, the, the city is designed around cars. Um, and uh, if you decide you want to uh, maybe uh, bike instead, it's it's kind of a it's kind of a scary uh, situation out there on the roads. Um, but uh, we've got to keep up those conversations and keep on talking about land use. Um, thanks for the call, Nathan. We appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, if you want to get join the conversation, you can call us at eight one three two three nine nine six six three. Let's get back to. Um, Don Chambers and talk a little bit more about the, um, I, we were talking about the Florida coastline. Can you just give me, paint a picture for me of what the Florida coastline has looked like, just in big chunks. Like, at one point we were all underwater up to the central ridge, and then it was giant, and now it seems to be creeping up on that central ridge again. Is that about right in broad strokes, what the Florida coastline has looked like? Well, in, in, in broad strokes, not quite as much water as what you're envisioning in the last 600,000 years. I mean, 120,000 years ago, it was somewhere around 15 to 20 feet higher than it is today. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm sitting right now in central St. Pete, and I'm at 35 feet elevation. So I would not have had water lapping over my doorstep. 
so there would have been dry places, but the coastline would have looked very different 120,000 years ago. But I think another perspective that people don't think about when they think about sea level rising and falling is we have to think about the barrier islands that surround coastal Florida. Is Naturally, those barrier islands move. They move quite a bit. They can be in one location, and they can get overwhelmed by storms, and they shift either north or south or back or forth. And it's only in the last 150 years or so that humans have been building infrastructure on barrier islands, Mm -hmm. and they don't want that infrastructure to move, and so they have kind of artificially changed uh, how nature uh, interacts with these barrier islands. You know, everybody wants beach renourishment to keep the beaches up, but that's completely artificial. I mean, most of these beaches are just... by nature, they should be shifting and moving. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, if you're going to live on a barrier island, that's something you have to expect. And I guess that, that you you are the co-author of a book in 2016 called Sea Level Rise in Florida, Science, Impacts, and Options. And that's one of the yeah. things that you talk about in that book is that yeah. um, our natural history shows that there's nothing new about the changing elevation of the sea. But what's new right now is that we all want to live here on these beaches. And so we're building all this infrastructure that not only is not intended to be there forever because of the changing coastline, but also accelerates the rising seas that make it not able to be there impossible. Now that, am I getting that right, the dilemma? Yeah, I mean, humans are living in this area where especially we've, we've, uh, as the previous caller said, we've kind of sprawled the cities. I mean, Jacksonville is like one of the largest sprawled cities in the United States, and that makes a very car-dependent culture, which relies on fossil fuels. And so that adds to the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So it is, you would agree with Nathan, our previous caller, that one of the solutions is to talk about our our zoning and our land use in order to mitigate... I, I am a uh, uh, bicycle commuter myself. I don't commute every single day in uh, St. Petersburg, but I, uh, I uh, commute several times a week on my bicycle. Uh, I enjoy the ride, but it also has become more and more dangerous over time because of the way that St. Petersburg has uh, changed some of the bike lanes and areas for bicyclists. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and so, you know, my, my, my perspective is anything you can do to reduce your carbon impact uh, helps. And uh, encouraging commuting by bicycle or walking or living close to where you work uh, will all help that. Uh, and if you're out there listening, give us a call, 813-239-9663, or send us an email at dj at wmnf.org and tell us, what are you doing? Are you doing anything personally to um, uh, try to reduce your carbon footprint? Or have you just given up? Are you throwing up your hands and feeling like this is just the way it's going to be? Um, there's nothing that we can do anymore to change things. Um, Don, I want to ask you this. We, I want to talk a little bit more about what we can do to, to address climate change but um, or how we can live with it. But give me a, paint a picture for me now. We've talked about what the coastline has looked like over time. The year 2100, so less than 80 years from now, my grandchildren, 
will be probably middle-aged, maybe. Um, hopefully, they'll have a lot of grandchildren to be middle-aged. But um, what does is, what is the Florida coastline look like then? What does St. Pete look like, Tampa look like? How different is it going to be from what we have now? Well, so it's not going to look tremendously different, especially if we keep renourishing beaches and barrier islands. Um, sea level will be anywhere from you know, one foot to three feet higher uh, than where we are probably today. Uh, and, and, and that is really dependent on what the ice sheets in Antarctica and Greenland do over the next 50 to 60 years. You know, that that's probably the weakest part of our knowledge in terms of sea level rise. That ice sheet in, in Antarctica, I was just started to read an article in the latest issue of The New Yorker. Uh -huh. The entire issue is devoted to climate change, and it talks about this one sheet of ice about the size of Florida that they're worried is going to break off. And, and so let's talk about what, what, what will that do? If it, if, yeah, if, so, so, so the, the, the problem is, is that we know that there are several major glaciers in Antarctica that are in a state of retreat, and because of the orientation of the bedrock that they're attached to and water can flow in underneath them, they will eventually break up and contribute to sea level rise. The problem is knowing when that is going to happen, because modeling the ice and the dynamics of ice is very problematic. Um, so we're almost 100% sure that these major glaciers will disappear and contribute up to about nine feet of sea level rise. But that probably won't happen for 500 years. Now, how much of it will happen over the next century? That's where it's at this level of one to three feet, right? So this is the other point that I was talking about. There's a certain amount of climate change that's baked into the system. Inevitable, the inevitability. Inevitable. This is one of the... Uh, areas where there's an inevitable amount of sea level rise that's going to be coming from these glaciers. And it could be as much as, you know, six to nine feet, but that will probably be four or 500 years from now. In the next century, it's going to be on the area of one to three feet. And what that means is not necessarily a change in our coastline, but how regular will we be experiencing flooding? Yeah, so if, if, if you're in an area right now and you get flooding at high tide a few times a year, let's say during the summer, because sea level is always naturally higher in the summer around Florida due to warming and the winds. If you have it a few times during the summer months now, it's probably going to be occurring almost every day at the end of the century. Another every day? It could be. Uh, yeah. uh, if it gets if it gets up to three feet and you are experiencing flooding quite a bit right now, well, and the uh, three. Let me just ask: hilarious. the three feet is is the three feet part of the inevitability, or the three feet is if we don't do anything? Uh, the three feet is if we don't do anything, uh, but it is eventually it's going to be inevitable, right? So but it's on, whether it's 
but whether it's three feet in 2100 or if it's one foot in 2100 is going to be partly dependent on if we can reduce the carbon emissions and you know scrub some carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and, and the inevitability is because of the amount of carbon that we've put in the atmosphere over more than a it, century it is the amount that we put into and the warming of the water that I've talked about and where this water has warmed, which is warming in the Arctic around Greenland and warming in the Southern Ocean around Antarctica. And it's going to take a lot of time for that heat to dissipate from those water masses. And they're going to continue to interact with these ice sheets. And these ice sheets are in such a situation that they will be continuously interacting with this water and they can't grow and reaccumulate ice. They're going to be continuously losing ice for the next several centuries. We're talking to Don Chambers, a client scientist with the USF um, Marine Science Department, um, if you would, uh, or College of Marine Science at the University of South Florida. If you want to join the uh, conversation, give us a call at 813-239-9663 and tell us, what are you doing to help reduce your carbon footprint? Let's move on and talk about that a little bit. We're talking about the inevitability. So what can we do as individuals and globally? Are we trying to stop the change, slow it, harden against it? Or do we want, do we need to just adapt to it? And, you know, if it's inevitable, what do we, how do we just try to predict it and maybe learn to live with it? Um, what are your What are your thoughts? What are What is our real goal here, um, Don? Knowing what you know about what's coming. Well, I mean that's that's a policy discussion, and that's the discussion that we should be having, and what we should have been having ten, fifteen years ago, and we which we didn't. People were still denying that it was happening, and I think and they still are. Uh, let's they just still are. Yeah, yeah, I mean because I think part of the issue is for I mean the climate change skeptics that I talk to. Yeah will point out that, as you have pointed out, Florida has been uh, flooded before. It is, was bigger with less water. This is just a part of a natural change. You're saying I, that's I, only half the story. I would, yeah, I would argue with them that it's not natural what's happening now. It's artificial. It's, it's human-induced. And, yeah, they're doing that, but also humans weren't living here 120,000 years ago, and so they didn't. It didn't really matter that sea level was higher. And then I would, I would just say humans are part of the natural order of things. So if our existence on the planet is causing changes to the planet, maybe that's just the way it should be. Well, <laughs> maybe, maybe is. before the industrial revolution and the invention of cars, we were living more in harmony with nature. I don't know. Well, you know, it it, it is a perfectly reasonable policy decision to do nothing. I don't think it's the right policy decision, but I don't think our policymakers, you know, especially locally uh, at the state level, have even gone that far <laughs> to make a decision to do anything. Well, I think uh, our policymakers in Florida, anyway, what their decision is, they're talking about um, resistance. Like what they want to do is harden. They want to try to harden. They don't want to stop building. They don't want to try to reduce emissions. This is in Florida, and what it, what Florida does is just one tiny piece of right. the globe. But they want to harden. They don't even want to try to talk about changing where we build, getting rid of, you know, addressing the flood insurance issues, you know, um, addressing the coastal high hazard area, building construction, rebuilding, all that. There doesn't seem to be any interest in doing that at all. 
And so if the state of Florida wants to spend trillions of dollars building a seawall all around the state, then that's a policy decision. And I don't think it's the correct one, but and I don't know where they're going to get the money to do it. But you cannot just harden certain areas and expect that the rest of the areas will be okay. When it's a coastal environment with sea level rise, what and what? what do you, so you're saying you don't think you know we can spend trillions of dollars trying to harden our coastline, but we could also spend trillions of dollars, you know, moving people, uh, managed retreat they call it. What's your yeah. thinking on managed retreat as as a policy? And and maybe you're I know that you are a scientist and not a policymaker, but you you know the science and I. And have interesting ideas about it. So, is it a is it a smart board? We need a bunch of different things, or? Well, my 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 personal opinion, and again, this is my personal opinion, and I feel really badly for the people who are impacted by Hurricane Ian and had their homes destroyed. Uh, but if you're gonna live in a coastal environment and your home is destroyed, it should be rebuilt. It should not be rebuilt uh, unless you can pay for it yourself. Rebuilt. Unless you can pay for it yourself and promise not to take any more government money uh, to in the rebuilding process. That would include flood uh, insurance because that encourages people to live yeah, in places exactly. that are vulnerable, right? And, of course, the flood insurance uh, has been uh, controlled so that you don't pay as much as it actually costs the government. And that's just to allow people to continue to live in flood-prone areas. So, yeah. So, so um, I, I'm nominating you to run for some office. Um, you, we're, we're talking also talking about solutions, um, what various solutions there are. What about um, alternative energy, alternatives to um, fossil fuels, wind, solar, nuclear? What are your thoughts on those? Well, you know, I, you know, alternate energy sources are our way out of the carbon problem that we have right now, you know, but we also have to be realistic on how much energy we can get from solar and wind. And we also have to be cognizant of the fact that they don't work all the time. Right. And so imagine after a storm when people need energy the most, but you can't operate wind generators in the high winds and it's cloudy and you don't have solar, where is the energy going to come from? Batteries? So, that's the problem. We don't have sufficient battery capacity at the moment or types of batteries that can store this power for days and weeks on end in order to have it available when we need it. There are always unintended that. consequences, right, yeah. to even, even yeah. the best. So, for example, a friend pointed out with uh, wind turbines, they are dangerous to birds, right? I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm, yeah. I don't know how dangerous they are, but it, that's an unintended uh, negative consequence to something that's intended to be a positive. But we, but we do need some capacity for electrical and power generation that can supply energy in times when the other ones are not there. And so nuclear is one type of energy that is clean that can do that. 
Unfortunately, in the early 90s, we pretty much abandoned nuclear energy, and a lot of countries have abandoned nuclear energy because of the fear of the radioactive materials. Um, that fear is a little bit overblown, in my opinion. And, you know, one thing that people don't realize is that more radioactive waste is generated by hospitals in the United States than is generated by the nuclear power plants. Interesting. You mean because of x-rays? Yeah, because of x-rays, isotopes. There's a lot of radioactive material in the hospitals. Wow. That's interesting. That's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And so the... The, the amount of uh, radiation material that's generated in nuclear power plants is pretty small. I, we got a couple of um, emails and uh, phone calls, so let's move to those for just a quick minute. We've got Amy Ellis, who um, a- Annie Ellis, who's the host of the Sustainable Living Show, a great, great show on WMNF. Don't miss it. Love that show. She says, in all exclamation, in all caps, exclamation points, plant more real trees. Live oaks can absorb and store ninety-two pounds of carbon a year with a mature tree, with a mature tree's canopy spanning more than a hundred feet. That's compared to less than one pound of carbon for a royal palm and its compact crown of 15 to 20 fronds. And she notes most people ignorantly over-trim their fronds so they aren't more than 10 at best, so they're not actually helping. Um, We've got um, uh, someone else commenting about uh, land use and development are important factors. This is Lenny, not only for producing carbon emissions, but also to absorb carbon. Vegetation absorbs carbon. When landscapes are plowed and clear-cut, that carbon is released. Also, the vegetation absorbs water. Clearing the vegetation releases the water. So, um, that is true. I mean, two emails right there talking about the importance of vegetation and not not, um, clear-cutting. And um, then we've got um, another one. I say stop cutting down all the millions of of Christmas trees for a man-made holiday. That's an interesting uh, uh, thought. And then we have somebody else saying, um, uh, Frank says he has solar, Mike says he has solar on his house and a hybrid plug-in car and plant as many trees as possible and support those efforts to organizations. Uh, My question is, what do do you know, um, Don Chambers, about large-scale algae cons to sequester or scrub carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. From what I understand, it's more effective than trees. Yeah, so I, I can comment a little bit on the on the tree planting and the uh, uh, that aspect. So actually, mangroves, a single mangrove can store more carbon than a large oak tree. Huh. And it stores it in a very different way. It stores it deep in the soil. So it actually is sequesters that carbon for a much longer time than oak trees or any other type of large vegetation because eventually that oak will die and it will release that carbon to the atmosphere, whereas mangroves uh, put it into the uh, soil. Hmm. So what's interesting there is that, again, with a lot of our coastal communities, they used to be filled with mangrove forests. And those were cut down in order to build a lot of the coastal communities. There you go. So, yeah, you're absolutely right, is that clear-cutting trees, especially mangrove forests, should be uh, eliminated here in the state of Florida. And, in fact, if we could grow more mangrove forests, it would actually sequester more uh, carbon 
than just us planting oak trees in our yard. Oh, that's fascinating. We've got just a few minutes left, so I want to take another phone call. We've got um, Dean that's been waiting on the line. Dean, you're on the line. What's on your mind? Hey, guys, how you going? Excellent conversation. I really uh, like it. Um, You know, and we have this problem. You know, how do we get energy when the wind's too strong or not blowing and the sun's not been out and where can we store this energy? And really the answer is in biomass. Uh, the one comment there touching on algae, that's definitely it right there. In growing insane amounts of algae on wastewater, on, um, you know, water here at Piney Point, where I'm actually at right now, it's kind of interesting. <laughs> um, and uh, you can digest that with anaerobic digestion and make biomethane and burn it in the current power plants that we have today. You don't even have to change anything. Um, so that's where we can uh, have our complete solution where we have um, the regular power plants on standby and still running, uh, coupled with the solar and the wind. So multi, so they- you want a multifaceted approach. And I'm sorry I'm cutting you off, Dean, because we only have like two minutes left on the show. They're out there. It's coming. Great job, guys. Appreciate the call. Thanks so much for calling and listening. Um, I'm going to give you Broderick. I'm going to put you on the line. You got 30 seconds, Broderick. What's up? What's your question? Oh, hey. I didn't really have a question, but I wanted to mention um, I'm one of the founders of the WK Preservation Group. Um, I'm in Tarpon Springs, Florida. And what we did a few years ago, because we noticed the building boom going on, and a lot of our local um, open properties, you know, wooded areas, were all getting bought up by uh, uh, developers and, and turned into condos. So we created a group in Pinellas County back in the uh, beginning of COVID, it turned out. It was around 2020. And we raised money and purchased the properties before developers can buy it. Oh, that's great. Yeah, we've uh, we've been on your show before, and we've actually had you out to the property off Clostamon Road. It's 14 acres, um, uh, thousands of trees, and full of gopher tortoises. That's a great success story, Broderick, and I think that's a great way to end the show because we have less than a minute left. Thanks for calling yeah, in. It's not, a, it's not a success story. Uh, people don't really seem that interested. They talk a lot, but then nobody is really doing a lot about it. Oh. But we've created a way to do something about great. it. And it's called w, WKPreserve.com. If you really do want to save land in Pinellas, that's, uh, look it up. Okay. okay, thanks for calling. Thanks for calling. WKPreserve.com. Thanks for calling. Don Chambers, thank you for being on the show so much. I appreciate all of your great knowledge. You've, I've learned a lot today talking to you. I've had you on the show once before, and we'll do it again. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks very much, and a happy Thanksgiving. Thanks to everybody who called in. Thanks to everybody who emailed. Stay tuned. Up next is headline news from NPR, followed by Harrison Nash. This is WMNF Tampa. Bye.